This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. They used to call space the final frontier. At least that's what Captain Kirk called it. Uh, I've come to view space as the next frontier. But these days, as space becomes more and more seemingly an answer to some of the problems that we're facing on this planet, whether we're talking about the mining of raw materials that we need for manufacturing high-tech goods here on Earth, whether we're talking about uh, an exit ramp if uh, we blow each other up Planet of the Apes style or succumb to climate change or whatever the case may be, it seems that it's not a question of if we're going to continue space exploration, which was very uncertain just 20 years ago, but how and when. So I've come to view space not as the final frontier or the next frontier, but I've come to view outer space and the world of the stars as the next logical step. And that's why I've always been really grateful that Steve Cates, a.k.a. Dr. Sky, has been so willing to be generous with his time and his wisdom on the subject of space. If you're new to the show, uh, Dr. Sky is a veteran radio and TV broadcaster and edutainer with a great deal of expertise in astronomy and space. He's also now hosting a podcast, which you can listen to at WABCRadio.com. And there's some great stuff on there. Just go to WABCRadio.com slash DR Sky. Steve Cates, it is great to talk with you again, my friend. Well, good morning, Frank. Always a pleasure to be back on the other side of midnight, and thank you for having me. What a jam-packed show this should be, because the things we'll be talking about that I know the listeners just love. Absolutely. Now, when um, our last couple of conversations have focused on the possibility of an asteroid coming to Earth and doing to us what, uh, what would happen to the dinosaurs, last time we were here, we were talking about the DART mission and when we would know if the DART mission to divert this asteroid was successful or not. Looks like the results are in, and it looks like NASA did a pretty good job on this one. Well, absolutely, Frank, and it's amazing that you can pinpoint a spacecraft that weighs maybe 1,300 pounds and hit it, a little object, well, not that little, 500 and some 20 feet in diameter. It's the second of the binary asteroids of a system, a little tiny object called Didymon or Didymus, and the object, I hope everybody within this listening audience got a chance to see the video. You see the spacecraft with its amazing camera as it moves in the DART spacecraft, with its Draco camera, and lo and behold, you see two objects. The smaller one is the impact target, and within, what, 30 seconds as they speed up the uh, framing rate there, you get to see this little rubble pile get hit. But what's more interesting is the residual material that's seen blasted off the surface of the little Diddy Moon, and the ground-based telescopes have actually imaged that, Frank, and it's quite amazing. So I can't say for sure that we know the orbital change of that little Diddy Moon But it's a step in the right direction. But God help us if it's an asteroid of the size of the original extinctor, anywhere from five to seven miles, 
will kind of need a bigger impactor, don't you think? Absolutely. Uh, so what is the latest with the DART mission? What's the next step? I know the initial DART uh, asteroid diversion was sort of a test run, and that asteroid right. was not really a threat uh, to this planet. Where do we go from here? Well, it's to actually do some more serious imaging from the little tiny spacecraft that was following this. And it's also for the astronomers to look at the orbital characteristics of these two objects. They know the frame rate, meaning the rotation rate, of both of these asteroids. But they're going to see if that means anything to do with the change in the orbit of the little Didymones. We probably won't officially know. And this goes out there because this could be a week, this could be a month or more, to know if the impactor actually did do some justice to moving the asteroid. But again, let's not hope, you know, let's not get too excited too early here because I think what people need to hear, and it's great that we have shows like what you're doing here, to tell people that this is a right, like you mentioned, this is an experimental thing. This is phase one. So the simple answer is we need a little more time, Frank, to understand the dynamics of what happened. But it looks very positive. It's like, as I described many times before, it's like taking a rifle bullet fired from New York City, let's say, and hit your target bullseye in some place like Los Angeles. That totally, mm-hmm. in that same analogy, I think that's quite amazing just on that feed alone, don't you? Oh, no doubt about it. Uh, if people are just tuning in, we're talking with Steve Cates, a.k.a. Dr. Sky. We're talking space for the hour. If you have questions about space, we have uh, on call the guy that can answer it, 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. There's been a lot of news coverage of what's happening in space lately, and I'm all for that. I'm all for exploring and explaining what's going on within the Space program, but sometimes because I think this level of space coverage is relatively new, at least in recent history, a lot of folks may not understand some of the uh, some of the terms that get thrown around and why some of this is so significant. So I always try to think of the things that I'd want to know. But if you have questions or if there's something that you don't understand that you've seen in the news, give us a call eight hundred eight four eight ninety two. 22. So, Steve, you mentioned the DART mission and the efforts there to divert the asteroid. What is the Lucy mission as it relates to these Trojan asteroids? Well, it's interesting, Frank. We live in a very impressive times, interesting times. There are many space probes that are out in space, but this one, known as Lucy, is actually named after a fossil or a partial human fossil that was unearthed in Ethiopia back in the early 1970s. And also, it was named as part the of the song, song the, right? Right, yeah. the Beatles song, Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds. So here's a spacecraft launch about a year ago that really didn't get, in my opinion, a whole heck of a lot of coverage. What's its purpose? It's on a long 12-year mission to examine some of the earliest of asteroids in the creation of the solar system, meaning about four and a half billion years ago, that kind of hang out. That's an appropriate term around the giant planet Jupiter, which, by the way, as we talk later in the program to tell people what they can actually see with these great planets like Jupiter. But on either side of Jupiter, either side, 60 degrees forward, 60 degrees back, they call these these Lagrange points. Same kind of thing with the James Webb Telescope was placed into a location in what we call a safe Lagrange area, and for reasons that we could go into ad infinitum. But, But this particular spacecraft, it's on this mission to examine these original creation particles of the solar system. They're rather large asteroids. But the interesting thing is the Lucy Space Mission, the spacecraft, has to do a number of these Earth-assisted returns. They're called gravity assists. And lo and behold, we happened to have one over the weekend, and I got excited, so many of my friends in the astronomy community, because we're hearing all chatter 
that, oh, yeah, you'll be able to see Lucy as it goes across the sky. Well, don't get too excited, Steve, because here's the truth about it, and that's what we report. The Lucy spacecraft made a close approach of the Earth over Australia by only some 210 miles on purpose as the gravity energy of that, you know, the Earth encounter pushes it back into space. So observers in Australia got to see, imagine this, Frank, going outside, looking into a clear sky, and you'd see the thing slowly, if not rapidly, moving across your sky with the naked eye. The West Coast, where I am here in Phoenix, we had an opportunity, albeit cloud cover and the late monsoon destroyed our chances. But the interesting thing, it's going to be doing a number of these Earth-assisted encounters as it zips along and goes out, a very difficult maneuver. It's going to keep going back and forth, coming around the Earth, and it's to explore. It's a solar-powered spacecraft. thing weighs about 3,400 pounds, a little, much more, a little bit more weight, I should say, than the DART mission. But I'm finding this fascinating, Frank, and I'm sure the listeners are, that we have such amazing technology now. And some people argue that we should be putting most of our money, if not all of it. I probably don't agree totally here, but the statement is this that we should be putting into more robotic spacecraft because you simply get more bang for the buck on these you know, robotic unmanned craft than you mm. do on the manned craft. Mm. So that's another conversation. But we're hearing a lot about Lucy in years to come. But can you imagine seeing that going across the sky going, wow, they even controlled it so that it comes back a year later. <laughs> it's going to go out to Jupiter, do a little observing of satellites, meaning the asteroids, come back again. And this is so amazing because there's many more spacecraft in the pipeline. Great technology. What is the counter-argument to that? Instead of doubling down on investment in robotic-powered space travel and spacecraft, what is the argument in terms of investing in manned space missions? Well, obviously, the human, obviously going to, say, the moon, the return to the moon, we simply can do many more things dexterity-wise until they can create some androgynous machine that I think Elon Musk is even working on these robots. But right now, you know, there, there's a good argument, and I hope that we're giving a good presentation on this. And, of course, we need that because you can do so much more. You know, you can actually scout out areas on the surface of the moon. There's maybe longer durations that you can be out on the surface of the moon with a specific mission. And, of course, if something fails on the robotic spacecraft, Who's there to replace the part? Mm. But the Russians tried this, Frank. This is interesting. They made many attempts to beat us to the moon during even the Apollo 11 mission with their lunar space probes. Sadly for them, they never got to the moon with a lunar probe before the Apollo 11. Actually, during the time of Apollo 11, one supposedly crash-landed. They were trying to beat us, scoop up some rocks and bring them back and say, aha, you know, we got (laughs) the lunar samples before you. But I think there's a good case. Uh, I'm saying it mildly, of course. Uh, I'm so proud to hear about the stories of humankind and exploration. But if you look at it, there are certain things that we cannot do. And the simple answer would be this. Robotic spacecraft, now on the other side of the coin, can do so much more without having to worry about radiation sickness, oxygen supplies, and all that. They are machines. And in many cases, they can cost a lot less than sending a fleet of humans. 800-848-9222, here with Dr. Sky for the hour. That's 800-848-9222. Let me begin with Jay in Cincinnati. Hello, Jay. Jay? Uh, Yeah, how you doing, Dr. Sky? Good, Uh, sir. The kids, we went downtown on a a school bus tour to to look at the moon rocks that they had just recently brought back from the moon. Mm -hmm. And did, did they prove from those samples that the Earth, 
the moon was actually part of Earth that broke away and got caught in its orbit? I think that no. was a theory. It was a theory, and that's so many. And let me say this, Jay. That's a great question because so many people believe that the moon was originated by a birthing out of, say, the Pacific Ocean. But the, the lunar rocks, I can say this. There are some different type of chemical compositions in those rocks that are basically not so prevalent here on the Earth. So the latest theory, and I think astronomers are pretty accurate on this, is that the moon was probably a captured object over the course of billions of years. Or it might have been even a separated object from a larger planet that we don't have today that then coalesced into smaller ones. So the moon rocks, of course, were not evidence that, of course, they came from the Earth. It's something different. Thank you, Jay. 800-848-9222. Speaking of the moon, Steve, what is the latest on the uh, Artemis One moon rocket launch? I know there was some fits and starts, some delays. Where are we with that at this point? Well, Frank, this is interesting. Uh, NASA just released another timetable, and they're saying that the next launch date, unless they change it again, is scheduled for November the 14th, and that's the latest information that I have. Why the delay? Well, there's so many issues there. They had overpressuring and hoses, the you know, hydrogen leaks, things of that to nature. The RS-25 rocket engines, and not, and not to knock NASA on this, they're using engines that were then revamped. And my word is very, you know, cautious here and very mild. They were revamped engines called RS-25s that power this big Artemis rocket. You know, they're good engines. They do work. But interestingly enough, in the simplest way, Frank, this is going to take place hopefully by November the 14th. And the mission is very interesting. And for listeners that didn't hear us talking about this over the last few months, it's an unmanned mission. There's three of these dummies on board that are going to be testing out radiation suits, uh, various pressure suits, all new things in, in the environment of space. Because the goal is rather soon after this Artemis, which is about a 40-day mission. See, it's not just a three-day or four-day outward mission to the moon and back, like, let's say, Apollo 8 when it orbited the moon, this is going to take a very high orbit called a retrograde orbit around the moon, purposeful. And its, its reason for that is it's going to be testing out the systems on the Orion spacecraft. And if you make a quick comparison, the Apollo capsule, relatively small, you know, many of the Apollo astronauts that I've talked to stated that they could actually get up, change their clothes, and barely stand straight up if they got up of their couches, you know, the three couches that were there. This is a much larger vehicle, but let's be careful how we tell larger. It's larger, but not all that big. So Artemis hopefully gets off the ground. The eight and a half million pounds of thrust is what people want to see to launch this big payload onto the moon. 800-848-9222. Let me say hello to Joe in Queens. Hello, Joe. Yeah, hi, Steve. A couple of quick questions. One is, uh, yeah, when you're talking about radio bursts, coming from Jupiter, is that something like radio waves? What do they mean by that? And then my second question is, when you send a probe, say, to the outer solar system, uh, Saturn takes 26, 27 years to, to go around the sun. How does that affect aiming the probe? Very good questions. Let's begin with the Jupiter radio signals. It's interesting. I don't know the exact frequency, Joe, but People can actually listen. I've done this before. And again, I'm not going to guess if I'm not sure, but on your shortwave radio bands, people regularly listen to the atmospheric uh, electronic you know, effect that's coming off of Jupiter. Why? Because it has its own big ionosphere, meaning when it gets hit by the you know, solar wind, the planet Jupiter is sending out all these radio signals. They can be heard 
the amateur radio community knows so much about this. But the launch dates, you bring up a good point, Joe, that the, the characteristics of launching a spacecraft, everything's done ahead of time. So since Saturn goes around the sun, like you mentioned, once in 29 years, any of the probes that we're sending, we want to send them at a time when we know by the time they get there that the shortest distance possible. So if you think of aircraft, when a lot of these big you know, aircraft fly, let's say, from Los Angeles, New York, around to different places around the world, they take a polar route. And many people look on the map, Joe, and say, wow, that's an odd way to go. It looks like a big curve. Well, this is the same thing with spacecraft. You want to make sure that you launch that spacecraft at a certain time when the planetary object takes the least amount of mileage, if you want to call it that. And don't forget, that was really heavily emphasized when we did Mars probes, as we do in the future. You want to make it the shortest line distance possible. 800-848-9222. Johnny is in Maryland listening on WCBM. Hello, Johnny. How are y'all doing? Doing great. Johnny, Johnny, good morning. I was reading an article today, and it was talking about black holes. And all the information I've had up to this point on black holes is the gravitational pull swallows everything in, and nothing comes out. Well, the article I was reading was talking about how I swallowed up a star like three years ago. They were following this black hole. And then all of a sudden, the remnants they believe of the star three years later burnt back out. Now, does that change everything we know or think we know about black holes? All I can say, Johnny, these are great questions that go into relativistic astrophysics and the fancy term of quantum physics. I can tell you what I know. Inside the Milky Way galaxy, there's a supermassive black hole called Sagittarius A star. That's what it is, like an asterisk after the A. This is interesting. It actually eats stars. And that's crazy, Frank, too. Imagine that, a black hole which nothing can come out. All the forces, gravity, mm-hmm. electromagnetic radiation, everything gets pulled into this thing. It's I have like not a heard giant it. Monster. <laughs> it is. It's, a, it's, it's horrible to even think about. And I say horrible because... Maybe you didn't hear this, Johnny, and hope you'll listen to the show uh, continuously here. But in this edition, I can share with you that if you got close to a black hole, and I'm not talking within miles, I'm talking at a great distance in space, you and I and Frank would be spaghettified. You know, I like right. my pasta, so why, too. So why all of a sudden is stuff spewing back out of the black hole? Well, this is an interesting thing. Here we go. And I know we don't have a lot of time for this, but this is fascinating, Frank. What Johnny's bringing up. Stephen Hawking said a long time ago before he passed, now don't laugh, folks, that black holes have hair. Now, not in the traditional sense that you have it on your head, but black holes leak. And black holes leak, and they also can disappear and dissipate. So the interesting thing you're talking about, I can't tell you of anything that I know from talking and reading and doing surveys and interviews that I can tell Frank, you, or anybody listening, Johnny, that anything's come out of a black hole officially, but the theoretical thing is that they leak. But imagine that well, have power. You seen, have you read the articles that I read today? I have there not read those specifics. I have not read those specifics. We'll, we'll do our homework. We'll do our homework on that one, Johnny. And uh, the next no, time Johnny, Steve's yeah. with us, we'll uh, <laughs> we'll uh, review the the latest on black holes. Thanks, Johnny. That's awesome. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. We're going to continue with your questions in just a moment. Also, some fascinating images coming out of the James Webb Space Telescope. Now, they're very attractive, very pretty, almost look like something that could be in some sort of a museum. But why do they matter? We're going to get into that. We're going to get into the weather and 
Don't look now, but Tom Cruise may be headed to space, not in a William Shatner sense, but in a very Mission Impossible sense. We'll get into that and a whole lot more with Dr. Sky, and we'll take your questions, 800-848-9222, straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. the side of midnight. I'm Frank Moreno, uh, joined for the hour by my friend Steve Cates, a.k.a. Dr. Sky. He is a veteran radio and TV broadcaster with a great deal of expertise in astronomy and space, and he has now officially joined the family at WABC Radio. You can check out his podcast and get some more information about what he's up to at wabcradio.com slash Dr. Sky. That's wabcradio.com slash Dr. Sky. And uh, I'm hoping uh, that is the very beginning of uh, his involvement with WABC. Uh, Steve, just so folks know, what kind of things will they be hearing in these podcasts that you can that you they can download at wabcradio.com? Slash Dr. Sky. Well, thanks for asking. I mean, the Dr. Sky experience is something we came up with because a lot of times people don't know this, and I don't know, Frank, if you even know this. Many years I did a radio show here in Arizona as I continue to do one out here also that's been called the Dr. Sky Show. But I've done one called A Call to Rights, which is about American exceptionalism and the different people that we get to interview you know, military veterans and such. So the whole Dr. Sky experience will be a combination of great interviews from the guests that we have from the worlds of astronomy, space, aviation, and weather, cutting-edge things. And we're just starting, so there's only a couple up there now. But there's a couple up there, and one of them is Don Isles. And who's he? He was the gentleman back in the 1960s that actually did the simulation software or the landing software for the Apollo 11 and all the other Apollos to the surface of the moon. So there's a nice 45-minute or so interview there with him. And many more to come. So we're excited to be part Terrific. of the WABC family. And i got to thank John Katsimatidis for his involvement. In Ab- absolutely. And uh, I heard you on the radio Sunday on John Katsimatidis on the, his nationally syndicated show, The Cats Roundtable. And you actually were talking about the fact that Tom Cruise, one of the biggest movie stars of all time, he actually may be shooting a portion of an upcoming one of his films in space? What's the story here? Well, this is interesting. I mean, this is not official official, but according to, you know, the publicist and people that are with Universal Filmed Entertainment, they put out a press release saying that the goal is to do this space movie. I don't know if it's going to be a Mission Impossible. Obviously, if people haven't seen, you know, Tom Cruise Maverick, I thought it was well done from our aviation friends and what we do in the aviation world. But what might happen here is it'd be the first civilian 
to go up out into space as a spacewalk. And that's even more phenomenal because if you think back about this, I had to do some research on this. And what I find out, Frank, is that since 1998, there have been some 253 spacewalks on the ISS, but they've all been, what, with professional astronauts. What's the difference? Well, they say that for each hour that you do a spacewalk, scientists, meaning the, the astronauts and cosmonauts, I'm sure, from the Russian side, they endure about a seven-hour time period in what's called a neutral buoyancy tank. And that's that big pool in Texas that they have to go in, really, with their full space gear on, in the water, underwater, with a lot of people that are in also scuba-type gear, you know, gear to be safe in case something happens. But that's the best simulation we can get on the Earth. So that's interesting. Imagine the training he has to go through that. But if you look back into historical stuff in the space world, the very first spacewalk happened in 1965. Russian cosmonaut Alexei Leonov beat the Americans by a few months. The first American to walk in space goes back to June 3rd, 1965, and that was Ed White. But it's a very sad story with Ed White because he, along with two other American heroes, perished in the Apollo 1 fire. But the walk that Ed White had, he basically said it was a New York Daily News headline. It says, walking is fun out in space, and he didn't want to come back in. But imagine that if uh, we find out that Tom Cruise does something like that. But it's not going to just be Tom Cruise that goes up. Imagine the lucky people that are the cinematographers, sure. the producers. But you can't take that many people up. But I'm going to put our names in, Frank, to see if maybe they'll let us do something. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, count me in. 800-848-9222. Don is in Long Beach. Hello there, Don. Hi, Frank. Hi, Dr. Sky. Uh, I was just wondering, has the James, good morning, um, has the um, James Webb Telescope done anything to change the Big Bang Theory uh, as far as the origins of the universe? Well, it's a wonderful question, Don. The answer right now is not so, because they're still looking to find out how far this can peer into the early creation. And if we look again, I may sound repetitive, but if people haven't heard this, 13.77 billion years ago, wow, that's when we believe that single point dot expanded. But the James Webb is pushing so far back, and I believe this to be fairly accurate. It's probably at the point maybe of 500 million years mm. peering into that time period almost to the very end. But I don't know if we'll ever get to the end, Don, but it's it's amazing. And I know Frank was alluding to something, right, Frank, about these new images. Yeah, uh, uh, one, yeah. one of the things that's gotten a lot of news just in the last few hours is this new image that was captured by the James Webb telescope, uh, which gives a new glimpse at what they call the Pillars of Creation, which is an oh. area 6,500 light years away that was made famous by a Hubble telescope image Precisely. in the 1990s. What exactly are we looking at here? It looks great, but what exactly is this? Well, you're looking at the protostar creation. I mean, inside all these nebulae, and again, all this gas and dust that's out there in space. Remember, the number one element in space is hydrogen. Obviously, it's a fuel. Obviously, rockets are using it. Obviously, the Artemis One is using it in a different rarefied form, liquid hydrogen. But out in space, what you're seeing in these pillars of light, you know, the whole creation, is these vast columns of material in which stars actually coalesce out of. Now, I know people can't see it, but the radio is the mind's eye. But when you look at the image, one of those pillars is literally light years across. So if, Frank, you were on one side of the pillar and I was on the other, even with our sophisticated radios and all kinds of transmission, 
even on the speed of light, it would still take us, what, years just to communicate just from one end of the pillar to the other. But what's inside that, folks, and Don, if you're still there, this is really fascinating. We're seeing the creation of stars. And that was the hardest thing, Frank, that I ever tried to understand in school, and I still don't really get it. I was told by professors, well, here's what happens, Steve. Over the course of billions of years, this dust particle starts spinning, and gravity forces pressure, and that heats up, and it starts a nuclear cycle called fusion. Frank, doesn't it sound like something's missing? <laughs> it seems so, so simple, but that's what's happening inside these pillars. There's stars that are actually being birthed. So it's a constant thing. You're looking at some things that are just so amazing. The eye of the James Webb is just amazing mm. and more to come. That's for sure. 800-848-9222. Lou is on Long Island. Hello, Lou. Yes, good morning. I'd like to ask with uh, the current propulsion technology, how long would it take astronauts to get to Mars? And what are they thinking of to uh, increase that, uh, well, technologically. Lou, you bring up an amazing question here. With chemical rockets right now, sad to say, the mission that you and I and Frank would be taking and other listeners, if we could get maybe 40 or 50 people on board one of Elon Musk's you know, starships, it would still take us about nine months with chemical rockets. So what they're thinking of doing, and there's a little spacecraft up there, Lou, that's actually called the X-37B. It's like a mini shuttle, and some people say it's a spy plane or a spy craft. It's a spy, you know, space plane. It may be. But it's testing out some new technology called xenon propulsion. It's more high-tech. It's not the basic use of chemical rockets. It's using photon energy that's coming out, keeping it simple, that just pushes something. And if you ever remember in school, I know, Frank, I remember this, and maybe you did, Lou. I, go, I grew up in the 60s. I remember this bulb that they had in a classroom, and it had a little thing inside it would spin if you held it near the light. That's the same simple concept I'm talking about, propelling something by light energy, but in a little more high-powered version. So that would probably get us there quicker. But the problematic thing, guys, is this. It's really the endurance of how you would even survive, because we're finding out that mm. the cancer rate in going to space is so horrible in, in so many ways because of all the radiation that's coming through we have to prepare for this mentally, physically, and almost emulate what they did when they went to Antarctica, you know, like the Endeavor craft, when they went and got lost and their ship sank. You need the right mindset to be able to endure outside this environment, meaning on the surface of Mars, but it would take nine months by chemical rockets today. Wow. Uh, 800-848-9222. I had no idea that the uh, the rate of cancer was that that high for people that go to space. I mean, it makes sense when you think of all the radiation and yeah. other elements that they're exposed to, but I, I guess I just didn't realize that. Well, Frank, this is very interesting, too, and I'm reading this stuff over the course of about a month here. I'm reading a very interesting book about SpaceX. It's titled Starship to Mars, the first 20 years. And why am I reading it? Because I want to make sure that I have the cutting-edge information to understand the backstory on a lot of this stuff. But here it is. They're saying that when astronauts return from ISS, they're not permitted to drive for three weeks or so because what it does to the body. And if you look at this whole thing on a more high level, as we're talking about, I'm, I'm talking about this, if you expose 100 people, which is maybe the capacity of a SpaceX Starship, the amount of radiation that Mars astronaut would be exposed to, it says here, and I, this is a sad number, 61 of them could be diagnosed with cancer over time as they make these journeys to the planets because we have not only 
the radiation coming through from the sun and particles. But we also have this new thing, which is gamma ray radiation and things of that nature, which are very powerful. And not, not to get way off subject, but an even more amazing, you know, breaking news story here on WABC would be this. On October 9th, astronomers detected the most powerful ever gamma ray burst. Get a load of this, 2.4 billion light years away. And what's so unusual about this burst? It actually induced a current into the Earth. Now, that's spooky because imagine something that powerful. What would you do? The Earth has an atmosphere, and we didn't find ourselves, you know, getting sick. But out in clear space, that could be a problem with mm. these amazing things from billions of light years away. No, that's for sure. We're going to continue with your calls in a moment. Uh, Steve Cates, a.k.a. Dr. Sky, is here. If you have questions, give us a call, 1-800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. talking about Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds. This, of course, is Across the Universe. We are exploring everything happening in the universe with a guy that knows a good, good deal of it. Steve Cates, a.k.a. Dr. Sky. Uh, you can hear his podcast, The Dr. Sky Experience, by going to wabcradio.com slash drsky. And if you want to check out the Dr. Sky blog, there's some great content at ktar.com as well. Steve, uh, you've caused me, in the course of doing these segments, to purchase a new set of binoculars and to oh, right. and to be a little bit more eagle-eyed when I look up at the night sky and I see the moon or the stars doing something yes. interesting. Anything happening in the sky, in the Northeast certainly, but really anywhere in the country, that people can look forward to seeing in the next few weeks? Well, Frank, that would be a two-hour or three-hour show, but the encapsulated <laughs> version is this. Right this week, and a matter of fact, another day from now, actually, people can start looking into the eastern sky, wherever you're hearing the WABC signal and the radio stations on that are playing this. If you look to the east after midnight, the constellation of Orion rises. And it's easy to see the constellation if you have clear skies. Even in cities, you can see it. The upper left star in the armpit has got the funny name. It's called Betelgeuse. That's the region where the Orionid meteor shower begins and actually, you know, peaks. And it'll peak as we go from Thursday morning into Friday morning. And if you look there, you may get to see, oh, 5, 10, 20 meteors an hour, depending on how dark your skies are. The moon will be a thin waning crescent, so it shouldn't interfere totally like a full moon would wash it out. So this is interesting because all that debris is from Halley's Comet. 
So if you, like many, didn't get to see it in 1986, I remember we did something up in a place called High Point, New Jersey back then. And no kidding, Frank, we had 5,000 people show up. They came in buses. They came in cars. They walked. Motorcycles. I don't even know if horse-drawn carriages were there. But we showed them this little smudge, and they went, oh, that's Haley's. Well, it's not going to come back till 2061. So I don't know about you, but I'll be a little too old. But if you look there, you're all seeing debris from Haley's. That's amazing. But with those binoculars, Frank, that you have, you look into the east high in the sky, that big bright white object is Jupiter, the goal of the Lucy spacecraft, this monster planet. If you look in binoculars and hold them real steady, you'll see these little dots next to it. Those are the moons, basic four moons. There's many more. Saturn to the right, that's in the sky. But get a load of this. The big event next month is the early morning hours of November 8th. How about this? A total lunar eclipse never happened before on Election Day. And that's going to be visible for people all throughout the listening area. The East Coast, you'll get to see it very early in the morning. But here in the, you know, in the West and the Pacific time zone, you'll get to see it a little earlier. Because remember, that daylight saving time thing comes in, I think, that Sunday before. And I know, what, in California, they're protesting that. They want to go on permanent daylight saving time. And the nation, I think the Senate, what, approved some bill to say that they're going to try to keep daylight saving time. But that's a controversy. But there's so many things to see, Frank, in our sky. Meteor showers, number one. Planets, visibility, spacecraft. If you just go to the heavens dash above.com site. We'll link that at our podcast section. And by the way, on the WABC podcast, we'll be doing sky reports every week so people can hear. We'll have those up in a few days. The current events that maybe the show we don't have the time to go into, maybe, but just as purposeful to get people to follow and look up. Great. So there actually is going to be a lunar eclipse on Election Day? That's correct. In the early morning hours of November 8th, yes, indeed, the first time that we've had a total lunar eclipse on Election Day. I don't know what that means from the astrological world or others, but we're looking at this moon that will be going into the deep part of the Earth's umbra. The second one, we had one we talked about it earlier, that was May the 15th for us in the West Coast and all across America. And they're kind of frequent now. We get, a, we get these maybe one or two a year, but there'll be a little gap. But that's an interesting thing, don't you think? Absolutely. There's a, a metaphor in there somewhere about even the Absolutely. moon hiding when the politicians come out. Uh, uh, 800-848-9222. Neil is on Staten Island. Hello, Neil. Hey, Frankie. Dr. Sky, the only doctor that you don't have to worry about paying the bill at the end. <laughs> and I don't take Medicare or whatever. Thank you. you go. I got two questions for you, doctor. Yes, sir. Number one, that autumn, that autumn is two. I mean, if, uh, this is only my opinion. But it seems that it's plagued with problems after problems after problems. To me, it, yes. it's like a bottomless pit. Do you think we should outsource it maybe to the Chinese? No, I wouldn't do that. Not because I don't like the Chinese per se, but I would say this. Here's the problem. Many people are talking about this, and I don't have a hand on this. When I don't know something, I'll be honest. And when I do, I'll continue to talk about it. But, Neil, there has been a lot of changes at NASA, good or bad. I mean, I'm not the one who works there. I talk to a lot of people there. But to really be professional here, but honest, the problem is they've got this rocket that the Congress approved the fuel on. And I'm sure if we asked Elon Musk to sit down in conversation, I bet you he – and I'm serious about this. He's made mistakes too. But I think, Neil, he would probably be able to fix this baby, get it flying. And you've got to you know, tip our heads to all the hardworking people that have been at NASA. You know, They're working with used engines that have been re, – re, re, what do you call it? Those engines have been reestablished. Mm. 
They've been refurbished is the right word. Sorry, I was thinking of something else. But, Neil, it's interesting. I'm hoping to see us get this rocket off the ground. But I do think if there was a contest, and there probably really is in a subtle way between SpaceX and, and NASA, I think what? Uh, what? What do you think, Neil? Don't you think that uh, SpaceX would probably have solved these problems a long time ago? Uh, you know, you don't bet against Elon Musk. Am I right? 800-848-9222. Keith is in Cincinnati. Hello, Keith. Hi. How are you doing, guys? Good, Good morning. Good, Keith. Thank you. Okay, uh, I got to explain this to people because this went up under the radar screen a couple weeks ago. Uh, mm -hmm. NASA announced that uh, it's going to send a craft in outer space to study the object that came in our solar system a couple years yes. ago, a Moa mm -hmm. yes. and that it would be catching up to a Moa around the uh, area of Neptune. Okay. Mm -hmm. But the amazing thing about the announcement that just caused me almost to fall out of my chair when it happened is they said that the craft would have a gravity well, gravity well engine propulsion system. Mm -hmm. I about fell out of my couch. How long have they been working on this secret technology? I don't know that answer, but I can tell you this much. Let's talk about Oumuamua. This is even more interesting. I mean, this secret technology that maybe you're talking about here it goes along with the xenon propulsion that I'm talking about that could be on the space plane, the X-37 and others. But this is really interesting. You kind of hit a good nerve with me on this one, Keith, because Oumuamua, it's named after the Hawaiian god, or the, the, the way term is meaning scout. But a good friend of mine discovered it. It's Dr. Robert Warrick, who's out there in Hawaii. And he discovered this object just to give everybody a better understanding of it. It's the first interstellar object that we've ever detected. In other words, asteroids are here in the solar system. They're part of our sun gravity. This came from another star system, maybe Vega. And the simple truth is it's shaped like a pancake, we believe. It's got low reflectivity, meaning red or, or dark brown or something like that. And some speculation is that it's not obviously just an asteroidal body, but some sort of a remnant of an intellectual, you know, some civilization. I don't know if that's true, but there's so many scientists, Frank and Keith, that are talking about What's so unusual about it? You're right. There is a spacecraft that hopefully can catch up to it, this new propulsion system. I wonder what they're going to find. But they're also talking about the problematic thing with Oumuamua. What is it? That it's actually accelerating as it's moving away, which is something that most objects don't do. So we'll have to see as we study more about the strangeness of Oumuamua. Yeah, there's a headline on space.com that says, uh, Amuamua is still puzzling scientists five years after its yes. first appearance. So uh, clearly a, a lot of people, even in the scientific community, have some questions about right. Amuamua. Well, there's another object, too, very quickly that we should mention, too. There was another object called Borisov. And Borisov pretty much has been ideated as a comet object from another star system. But what makes it even more perplexing is that Amuamua has not ever been designated as a comet. Hmm. There's no coma around this. This object is extremely strange. And some say that it's reminiscent of a very much larger Millennium Falcon. But that's the stuff of what? Star Wars. Sure. 800-848-9222. Jeff is on Staten Island. Hello, Jeff. Uh, good morning, gentlemen. Good morning. Dr. Good morning. Sky, I, have, I yes. have a question about electromagnetic pulses. Yes. What is the latest in terms of how fearful we should be of one of these basically destroying the whole electrical grid of the world, if I'm understanding things I've read. Mm -hmm. And yeah, is yeah. there anything we can do about it? Are we working on this? And well, Jeff, uh, it's I great that we, we – yeah. yeah. 
go ahead. No, I'm sorry. Finish your point, sir. No, I'm sorry. I was going to say it's great we're doing this thing with the dart and maybe, you know, steering an asteroid away from us. But from things I read, it seems we should be more fearful of the electromagnetic pulse. And are we doing anything about it? Well, you're right. And it's a very depressing subject because I know, Frank, you've had Dr. Peter Pry on here, mm-hmm. Dr. Peter Vincent mm-hmm. Pry. I've had him on my program. And if you're not sure who that is, Jeff, he's probably the smartest person in the world, in my opinion, on the ill effects of EMP. Here's the bottom line. If a rogue nation, let's say, like North Korea, Iran, or anybody wanted to shoot off, let's say, a submarine off the coast of, say, New York, Los Angeles, all you would need to do is fire a Scud-type missile, as crude as that technology is, and go only 15, 20 miles, maybe 30 miles above the atmosphere with a small-yield nuclear device. You remember Hiroshima and Nagasaki were allegedly, depending on who you talk to, 11 to 15 kilotons, not megatons. That alone would just disrupt the entire power grid over a good portion of the United States. If you had a more sophisticated type of nuclear device, let's say 20, 30, maybe even 50 megatons, and detonated it high in the atmosphere, how high? Two to 300 miles above the United States, you would seriously wipe out everything that we have here as far as electronics, our phones, the little things called SCADAs that are inside all these, you know, pumps, the fuel pumps when you go to the gas station, the entire banking system. I know there's nothing, I think, that would be impervious to it. But, you know, Jeff, you bring up a rather interesting subject. We sure aren't doing enough about it. Our, you know, whole electric grid was compromised in California a number of years ago by theoretical terrorists that broke into a substation near San Jose, California. They shot it up with AK-47 rifles and they actually terminated a good portion of the power grid. So I think not just EMP, but somebody getting into some of these facilities. The bottom line, we need to strengthen it. I don't know the answer how to do it. Dr. Peter Vincent Pride does, right, Frank? He's got the details. No, nobody more knowledgeable than than him. And as I understand it, there's also, an. it's not just hostile actors uh, in Mm -hmm. terms of nations or terrorists that we need to be cognizant of. There's an opportunity. There's a a very real possibility of a naturally occurring EMP, right? Absolutely. And we go back to the sun. All weather comes from the sun. And all people have to look up is the 1859 Carrington event with a C, not a K. And that, even though that was the age of what? The analog Internet when we had telegraph, the powerful blast from the sun sent such an amazing CME and proton storm toward the Earth, it actually electrified and set on fire many of the telegraph lines. And there were Mm. even people who got shocked sitting at their telegraph (laughs) trying to send SOS. They got a zap of electricity. So imagine how vulnerable we are today with electric cars, all kinds of things. Jeff, you bring up a good point. Absolutely. 800-848-9222. Let me at least try and get one or two more calls in. Janet is in Manhattan. Hello, Janet. Oh, hi. Thank you, Dr. Cates. Um, Good morning. I'm curious about a couple of things. You mentioned before the ionosphere and solar wind and some relationship that they have with radio waves. So could you elaborate a little bit on that? First of all, what exactly is solar wind and what exactly is the ionosphere? Is it just a bunch of charged particles like electrons and protons? And what effect do those two have on radio transmission? Great questions. They're really super, Janet. Thank you. Here we go. Let's start with the sun. The sun pumps out constantly this fluid as if you had a garden hose, let's say. That's a simple explanation or or analogy. It's pushing out a stream of particles. Those are charged particles from the sun that naturally come out of the sun as it endures the fusion process. 
But what happens when a lot of those charged particles race toward the Earth and they're more energized, like you, like we were talking just before with Jeff about EMP, when the sun pumps out coronal mass ejections or flares, we get a higher density of those. In other words, much more powerful. And when they come into the Earth, the weakest points of the Earth's magnetic field are both poles. So they get sucked into the north and south. That's why you have auroras in the north and south poles. But the ionosphere is a layer of the Earth's atmosphere that has charged particles in it way above the stratosphere. In other words, aircraft can fly like commercial jets up into the stratosphere. What happens with that ionosphere, if those particles get collected inside that level of the atmosphere, they get charged up. And what happens is we can get radio interference. A lot of, quote, ham operators have a difficult time, you know, communicating when the ionosphere changes. But it's all due to the solar wind, so they're all connected it's an amazing story, and the auroras that we see are excited up and above that area of the atmosphere, too. Great questions. Steve, it is not nearly as exciting as going to Mars or even some of the interesting things that the moon is doing, but the weather can have a lot more real-world implications for us on a day-to-day basis, especially if we're talking about something like a snowstorm when you have sure. to commute to work in the early morning hours. Uh, what can we expect weather-wise? Uh, go- we're, we're basically a stone's throw away from the beginning of uh, the 2022-2023 winter season. How's this winter look from what you could tell? Well, great question. AccuWeather forecast at AccuWeather.com say this, that we're in for what we call the triple dip La Nina. And this is the third winter in a row that La Nina will shape the weather across the U.S. And what is it? It's climate phenomenon that occurs when the water near the equator and the area like the Pacific, the eastern Pacific, is cooler than average. So that changes the, the location of the jet streams. And right now, Frank, as we're talking for East Coast listeners or people across America, we're hearing that a great cold wave is now hitting, what, the southeastern states moving up into the New York area. And this could be a prelude to the changes that are coming. So simply, it looks like we'll have another La Nina, which means wetter and snowier winter for 2022-2023, At least, as I say before, all weather comes from the sun, and we're in a maximum period coming up here with Sunspot 20 Cycle 25 on the uptick. So, I don't know. It's uh, looking colder and snowier, at least that's what they're saying for this Mm. winter season. We saw four astronauts return to Earth by SpaceX after an ISS mission. Uh, I guess it was late last week, may have even been this week. Kind of when you work these hours, the days sort of blend into one another. Yes, sure. What's the significance of, uh, of, of this particular mission and the fact that this was a SpaceX-NASA partnership? Well, what they're trying to do, they're making sure that the Crew Dragon capsule gets its complete workout. And it's been very successful because, remember, this is really depressing news in my mind. Before we had the capabilities that Elon Musk and SpaceX have brought to us and other companies, there'll be the Starliner, there'll be a few others. But think about this. We had to endure Russia charging every one of our astronauts to go up to the ISS. You ready for this, folks? Each seat on that particular Soyuz cost $90 million that the Russian government got. That's out of my budget. But the truth of the matter is now it's a safer, more reliable, and an American way to get our astronauts up to the space station. Steve Cates, it's always a treat to talk with you whenever we chat. The hour just flies by. Thank you. Thank you, Frank. Hear more from Steve Cates at uh, wabcradio.com slash Dr. Sky. In the immortal words of the great 
Casey Kasem. Keep reaching for the stars while keeping your feet on the ground. This is The Other Side of Midnight, an action-packed three hours coming your way straight ahead. 